Welcome to the Observer Effect, a podcast of travel stories. Each week we hope to bring you a conversation with someone we meet overseas and at least one good story. Episode 51, The Summing Up, Burma, where Seth met Mr. Book. About a year ago, as I was embarking on this podcast, I was walking down the street for the first time in the old town of Oporto, Portugal, and at the end of it, I could see a street performer twirling slowly. Crumbling beige and gray apartment buildings pressed close on either side, against intermittent chocolate shops and blue-tiled bookstores. All their roofs were rust, and all their facades covered in moss and the cold drizzle. As I approached, I realized that the arm-length ribbon he was waving in the air was actually producing huge, knobby bubbles that he sent floating down the alley toward me. And as one formed, Its purple and yellow and clear film swirled and curved my picture of the street until the bubble drifted over me and broke against my camera. This is part two of our 50th episode celebration, and my friend Dave has stepped in once again to help reflect on what the observer effect has been so far and where it started. So, The Observer Effect is a podcast of travel stories, which I collect from the strangers I meet while my wife and I travel. On last week's episode, part one, I called it an empathy machine. My hope is to jumpstart desire to know others by listening and generate a different kind of knowledge than the news or literature or school do, and the will to find that knowledge. I've envied my podcast heroes for a long time, David Plotz, Julia Turner, Stephen Metcalf, Dana Stevens, Krista Tippett, Terry Gross, Matt Gorley. I've wondered how getting to have so many rich conversations with interesting people has transformed their lives. Then I realized I could have those conversations too. Nearly every interview I've done since has begun with a deceptively simple question. What do you look like? What I look like? Like old woman. <laughs> I'm a man who looks like a boy. <laughs> what do you mean? I'm, I'm <laughs> it's probably similar like you do. <laughs> um, I'm petite, dark blonde hair, blue eyes, fair skin. Uh, I have a tendency to turn pink. I'm uh, I'm saving for this man bun to annoy my girlfriend. My girlfriend. Yeah. Oh. Give a picture to the audience. Oh. Then, then I'll ask uh, him to describe himself. I don't him. know how to describe him. You tell me, and you. And so, would you ask him to describe his his own appearance? Okay. Eh, me pregunta que te describas a ti mismo, tu apariencia, para que la la audiencia tenga una visual de ti. Hulk. <laughs> that doesn't need translation. Hulk. Perfect. No? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Meeting these strangers has changed the way I think about the world. I interviewed a Beatles tribute singer in front of the Lennon Wall in Prague, a falconer in Scotland, 
a 79-year-old woman who just made it to 80 countries, or maybe I have that reversed, a Swedish artist designing a piece on loneliness in his woodshop, the director of the Freud Museum, tourists waiting to pass through a metal detector and enter the Vatican, who once relocated from India to the U.S., a sommelier whose first glass of wine in the Doro Valley set his course in life, a guy from near my hometown standing on top of a Mayan pyramid in Guatemala, a New Zealand diplomat sitting on the steps of Oslo's train station waiting to embark on her first Arctic expedition, a volunteer distributing breakfast in a refugee camp in Greece, a homeless poet writing verse in chalk on the sidewalk of a priory in Oxford. The people I've met have hiked further into the Alps than they should have, eaten snake hearts in Vietnam, tagged buildings all over Barcelona, hosted more than 2,500 Airbnb guests, come out of the closet when they moved to Chicago, escaped communism, met Jorge Luis Borges, lived in a cave in France for two years, been summoned to Iran by their father-in-law, nearly died in Patagonia, drunk glaciers, kidnapped babies in Kenya, surfed in Galapagos, seen the burning bush in Sinai, walked from Spain to Morocco, fled violence in Syria, healed themselves of epilepsy through sheer desire to travel, given birth, been robbed, given up love for Ecuador, planted churches, left churches, played guitar, run out of money, seen their friends descend into voodoo trances, crossed bridges, gotten sick, gotten their visas, eaten delicious food. I've told Primo Levi's story, Jane Addams, Melville's, but I haven't told the story of who exactly set me looking for all these people and all these stories. It was Mr. Book, and I'll tell you at the end of this episode. For now, all I can do is parrot Fernando Pessoa, sitting alone in a Lisbon cafe, and promise you where we are is who we are. Yeah, well, something that I was thinking about um, as I was thinking about your project and listening, um, yeah, is that so often um, good listening requires listening to ourselves as well, right? And helps mm-hmm. us learn how to listen to our own um, spirits or bodies. Um, and similarly, I think with travel, traveling the world helps you come home to yourself in a lot of ways. Yeah. So, um, yeah. Are, what have you learned about listening to yourself through listening to other people? So I was hoping to talk about this question because that's the big question I set out to try to change myself through this listening. And I'm anxious to <laughs> say something now. You know, it's been a year. I've overshot, you know, the time frame that I gave myself. And I've tried to write about it. I'm only just beginning. I don't have a firm sense. I don't have a set of words yet. Um, but I believe that it's changing me in ways that can't be accessed that don't fit 
in words, you know? So I guess one thing I've learned is um, listening to so many different kinds of people tell so many different kinds of stories. Not everyone knows how to tell a story and not everyone knows what a story is, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and so listening to others organizes the way that I think about stories mm. and I'm constantly evaluating not in a mean or critical way, not to reject someone, but just, so I I try to accept whatever people tell me. That's part of the process. You know, early on I decided, well, I just went through this process of asking, do I want to edit with my audience in mind and try to make it as entertaining as possible and cut out, you know, digressions and fluff Or I remember the moment when this choice came up. It was the third episode. It was Mm -hmm. with Ophira. And I met her in this coffee shop in Seville. And I met with her. I met her in a class, a Spanish class. And, um, you know, her story ended up being just about five minutes. And it wasn't exactly a story. It was just something she did. She went to Liverpool because she loves the Beatles. She made a pilgrimage and twice actually, which astonished me. I just loved it. I just ate it up. The people there were kind, the, the kindest I've ever met. And they were so, so nice to me. And uh, also, what do you mean? Well, also out of their way, uh, showing me things. Um, they must have great accents too. Yeah, well, I feel at home there because I, I know, of course, the accent. Do they all sound like the Beatles? Yeah. <laughs> and there's also all these Beatles lookalikes that walk around or, or, or just play in it's the like evenings. Heaven. Yeah, I was in the cavern, you know. And then in the evening, there was Beatle after Beatles. But some are Japanese, of course, and they are. But some are from there, so it's, it's quite an experience. I would really recommend that. Yeah. Wow. Is there anything uh, you bring to your travel differently than others as a psychologist? Um, Do you think you look at travel in a different way than others? I think in any case I look at people differently. Mm. I've already, uh, without wanting to, I've already, uh, <laughs> really, I've already given like kind of um, <laughs> personality traits to people in our class, for example. Yeah. Yeah. Do you want to talk about that on record? Okay. You can keep that to yourself. But it wasn't a story. It's just that, you know? And I realized I couldn't make her make it into a story. You know, this is only like the fifth or tenth, you know, interview I had done. But we had talked for a long time beforehand, this long wind-up about her work as a psychologist. And... um, I loved it. I just ate it up and I just thought, I'm just going to go for it. I'm just going to put it out there. I'm just going to listen to people, no matter what they tell me and try to find a way to trust other listeners, my listeners, my audience, that they will value it too. And it just raised this interesting question for me, like, why do I value certain kinds of stories and not others, you know? what what am I looking for 
in a story that makes it good. And is that something trustworthy or is that what I'm hoping to change? You know, like maybe the thought, the horrifying thought came to me that I'm just completely conditioned by TV, you know, to expect a certain kind of story that gives me pleasure. Um, so I've heard people say, and I, I know it's true that sometimes the interviews are meandering and, and boring and they're not for everyone, but there may be something to that, you know? So yeah. I've, I've tried to question myself. I've tried to change as a listener and embrace what people tell me no matter what, even as I evaluate it and try to discover what is a story, you know? Well, um, since you kind of jumped into talking about some of your interviews, I'd like to hear a little bit more. Um, Mm -hmm. So here's, Here's one question I have is, um, can you describe the most awkward moment that occurred during an interview? (laughs) Mm. There's several ways I could answer that and several stories I can tell. (laughs) It's an awkward project, you know? Uh, For me, the most awkward thing was at the beginning, approaching people (laughs) and I've done this now so many times uh that it has gotten somewhat easier but I I know I still have this feeling this like you know it's an imposition on a stranger that's weird you know and so every time I have to dance to I have to dance my way into their trust you know uh and it's very intense moment where I have to convey, you know, I'm a safe person who's approaching you. I mean, if it's a total stranger, you know, or even if it's just an acquaintance. Yeah. But also I have to convey this information about what it is that we're going to do. And I have to overcome their anxiety, their their fear of um, or their shyness, you know, mm-hmm. <laughs> all in this intense moment. And I just remember... Allison and I had a friend visiting in Seville. This all started in Seville and we went out to a hostel that had like a communal dinner on the roof and there were just all these people. And I was just, you know, salivating at the thought of all the stories that were passing across that table, that amazing dinner of curry and beer. (laughs) And we just went over and sat at the end of the table and we're our awkward shy selves and (laughs) the people nearest us. And I just, I worked myself up, you know, I thought I'm going to just do it. I'm going to just say it. And there were these two Belgian girls sitting on either side of us. And finally I just pushed through and I said what the project was. And they were like, yeah, sure. Mm -hmm. (laughs) It turned out to be a great, interview you know yeah um but another time i was in stockholm and i saw a map seller in this cobblestone road in a stone building and i went in and i started talking to him and he was an older guy and he was from wales it turned out 
and fireworks were going off in my mind of all the potential, you know, and I started bringing out my iPad to record and I asked him, could I interview you? And his look of horror in his face, his eyes widened and he got angry and he said, he crossed his arms and he said, nope. No interviews, no photos, nope. And he started backing away from me. And then he turned around and disappeared into the darkness of the shop. And I was just standing there alone. And that was my first rejection (laughs) in the process. Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah, it's so interesting, right? That um, I'm sure if you're in conversation with people, you can sort of tease out these stories in basically in the same way that you do an interview, but when mm-hmm. you bring this format of an interview into the process, it turns it into a second order experience, right? For both of you. Um, yeah. And that makes people uncomfortable. Do you have a sense of why? It's fascinating to me um, because I see that change every single time. Yeah. Everyone. There's a little glitch, you know, uh, their personalities change. Yeah. Some of my favorite people, my my favorite, most outspoken people whose stories I've dreamed of getting, you know, included in this project, completely lose their, their, uh, (laughs) their demeanor. And, and, uh, yeah, it's fascinating how that works. I think that, yeah, I don't know. I don't know the answer. It, it is just very human, you know? Mm-hmm. Well, um, what's the most surprising story you've heard? I interviewed a guy from Austria in Greece. He was volunteering at this refugee camp his name was Ferdy. He was, uh, Ferdinand was his name, but Ferdy is what we called him in the <laughs> breakfast distribution. He had on this vest, this beige vest, you know, for the organization he was working with. And uh, I could tell he was slightly, I could just get a sense he was a character, you know. And I really was looking forward to talking to him. And I thought it would just be about volunteering and that kind of thing, you know? And I asked him what his best story was. And he said that he couch surfed nude. (laughs) 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 And from there it developed and just his telling was glorious. Yeah, actually, this was a really nice story because uh, when I was in Australia and I was in New Zealand, I had done a lot of um, couch surfing. Yeah. And my last stop in Australia was in Cairns, and I, I, I've been with Frank, and he's a really nice guy, and he's as well a nudist. So, <laughs> so I've been naked for two weeks in Cairns. Wait, what? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and it was really fun because he was posting it in, in culture from the website. What? He's saying he's sharing the natural way of lifestyle. And like, you know, in my apartment, you should get rid of your clothes. 
And so you chose this. You knew what yeah, you were getting into. Yeah, I, what, I knew it. But what was your thought process? Like you thought, oh, this would be an interesting experience. Exactly. Yeah. You've never so why not? done it before. Yeah. You know, I, of course, I went like swimming naked and stuff. But it's common not in like, Austria, right? Yeah, it is. Yeah. It is. But also not like with a foreigner, you know. Yeah, and not and living. Yeah. Not every day. And it was fun because when you know when I saw him at the at his apartment, he just came out and gave me a sarong. Yeah. And I took it and he showed me my room, a really nice little room. And then I was like, undressed myself and put the sarong around my hip. Yeah. And I just went out and Frank was naked, of course. <laughs> and I just uh, asked him, Frank, is it okay this way? And he just grabbed the sarong. Oh, come on, Ferdy. <laughs> And took it off, and then it was like two weeks naked. And I, I was stunned and delighted all at once, and I didn't know how to how to proceed. And and uh, he just told it beautifully. <laughs> That's great. Um, what's been the most um, heartrending story that you've heard? We talked with a guy who is a, an old college friend of Allison's named Kai, who um, found out that, so he came to Seville and um, he, had, he was in the midst of traveling the entire world really aggressively, very intensively getting everywhere. And the reason was very clear cut. His wife had cheated on him and they divorced. And uh, he was explicitly looking for some recovery, some healing. A couple of years ago, uh, I had pretty much the biggest heartbreak of my life. Um, I was with someone for 12 years and then we split off and now I'm traveling kind of almost nearly full time to, to kind of heal and get over her. So give us your stats. Where have you been? My stats. Where have I been? <laughs> um, my stats. Since my ex and I broke up, I have been to Mexico, Australia, New Zealand, Peru, Bolivia, Chile, Korea, uh, South Korea, Taiwan, Hong Kong. Cambodia, Laos, and Vietnam. And then on this trip, I started off in Belize. Then I've been to Guatemala, Nicaragua, Costa Rica, Panama, Brazil, Uruguay, Argentina, Spain, Portugal, and then Spain again. I'm in, now I'm in that part of Spain. After this, I'll go to Morocco, Istanbul, Cairo, Jordan, India, China, and then Mongolia, finally. I'll return from Beijing. So, the little alliteration that's nice and cute for everyone is I'm on a round-the-world trip, solo, from Belize to Beijing. <laughs> that's perfect. And it was very painful. Yeah. Um, but his healing was really beautiful to learn about also. Yeah. But um, the, probably the most heartrending story is actually my favorite. And I think it's the most important episode that, that we've done. If nothing else, 
just this episode alone made everything worth it. Uh, we interviewed a woman named Hanan who had escaped Syria with her husband, Yusuf, while she was pregnant with their kids already. And she traveled through Turkey and she traveled by boat from Turkey to Greece while pregnant. And she arrived in this camp that she didn't expect. She thought to pass through. She thought she would pass through and go to Germany. Mm. But right at that moment is when the EU slammed the borders shut. And she's been living in this camp ever since. That was March last year when she was stopped and she was pregnant. Mm. And as spring advanced and it turned into summer and you know she came to term and she did not want to have the baby she said in the camp you know yeah. and she was so angry and frustrated and and disappointed they were living in tents for the first time in their life you know yeah. and she ended up going to the hospital and having Ahmed and she said now he's the light of her life was it like other uh, what, like your other children or was he different somehow me his his birth was it no was it's difficult more than uh, four three children i mean difficult more than three children yeah why i'm staying in the hospital from seven. everything um, Mm. different maybe in syria i born with my family mm. Mm. with my husband in beautiful place in the and with my doctors mm. and uh, everything is easy for me my husband take me to the hospital and bring me and everything, everything prepared better. well yes yeah. yes everything better can say we are ready yes <laughs> for everything yes and in freedom yes yeah yeah yeah, yeah. Yes. Here I'm strange without um, without my family, without my husband. I don't know. Yeah. Then yeah. I refuse. If you remember, I don't refuse born here. Always I said, you want to must to take some clothes for your baby. I said, no, I don't want. <laughs> I I refuse to. But my baby in this place and always cry, cry. Remember. Ahmed. <laughs> <laughs> and now Ahmed is. My happiness. Yeah. And you can see it. <laughs> I mean, he is pure light. His gurgling smile is a wonder. And she said one of the most beautiful things that in the tent, every morning before the rest of the family wakes up, she and him wake up together and they sit together and they talk for an hour. She said that pointedly. I mean, he doesn't talk. You know, he's well. He's a few. He was a few months old at that yeah. time. You know, now he's getting close to a year, I think. And uh, you know, I hope to be a parent with that kind of love someday. Mm. So it's heartrending, but very beautiful as well. Well, um, so Joe, I've known you for, I think about 12 years now, no longer, like 13 or 14. I think we really started becoming friends in 2013, 
this or 2003. Does that sound about right? Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah. So, and you've traveled a lot since then. I mean, you graduated and went to China first, right? Uh, Togo first. Uh, yeah, well, that was during college, right? I graduated just before that. Okay. But but it was a program yeah. through the university, so you know it's a gray area as yeah. young adulthood is. <laughs> and that was thanks to you. And actually, <laughs> now I'm not sure if I remember correctly or not, but I had some, maybe some bitterness toward you. <laughs> <laughs> I think at first I thought I was going to be going with you. <laughs> and that changed, or maybe I'm not remembering it right. I don't know. But anyway, you inspired the trip. Uh, there were a whole group. There was a whole group of us that was going to go together, and it ended up being only two at the end. I guess that's <laughs> the way things work. But yeah, you you uh, grew up in Kenya, right? Yeah, and that made me insanely jealous of you. Uh, that's part of why we became friends. Yeah. But yeah, so that that was first, and then China was two years later after Togo. Okay. Well, um, I'd love to hear your best travel story from all your years of traveling around the globe. <laughs> okay. So I tell this story a lot and probably any listeners have heard it already. Um, I tell it every time I teach a class, uh, when I finish the class, I ask the students to give me about 10 minutes to tell this story. When Allison and I were living in Korea, she developed this appetite to go to Myanmar, to Burma. And I thought she was crazy. <laughs> she saw an opportunity for her freelance travel writing because... Burma was only slowly opening up. I mean, it's still in the process of slowly opening up. And I wasn't sure I wanted to go in the summer. <laughs> and uh, eventually she talked me into it. It was very complicated. You know, you have to carry all your cash with you. Uh, there's no ATMs, so you have to figure out how much. So we were going to go for two weeks, and that was you know, new for me <laughs> to carry that amount of money in cash. And you had to get a, you had to go to Bangkok to get the visa. That's the only way in. It's a pretty tough border to crack. And so we finally got into Yangon, the capital, and we went even further. We took, you know, long night bus rides up to the north, which was a new experience also for me. And we took a train into the jungle over a canyon, just way, way up in the middle of nowhere in this little town in, uh, in the north. And at that point, I got extremely hungry for books <laughs> because during the course of our travels, I exhausted all my supplies in my bag. And Lonely Planet said that there was a bookstore there mr book bookstore <laughs> and i followed the directions and where it was supposed to be it wasn't 
It's like a one town street or a one street town. And I kept asking people for Mr. Book and they kept pointing at the same spot. And I was utterly confused. I could not see a bookstore at all. <laughs> and so I lifted up this tent flap and I found a row of books that were the width of my body. There were like 20 books. And that was the bookstore. <laughs> and they were all Ian Fleming, James Bond, 007 <laughs> novels. <laughs> and I was so crushed. <laughs> and uh, so I, I started investigating further and I like leaned into this tent and I looked inside and I saw a man teaching uh, a boy. And when he finished his lesson, he beckoned me in and he sat me down and he gave me coffee. And it was a little, he was a little wary at first, but um, he eventually warmed up to me and he said, this, or sorry, he said, these are my books. And he gestured and surrounding him was all the world's great literature. Mm-hmm. <laughs> And he was such a character. I keep thinking, how can I bring him to life in my writing and my telling? He's so indelible. I'm not good at impressions, but he had a way of saying, hello. He was, he was full of wonder. He was full of excitement and passion, you know? Mm. And in Burma, you know, men wear clothing that looks like a dress, you know, or like a skirt. It goes down it's a skirt that's wrapped, you know, Mm -hmm. at their waist and it goes down to their ankles. And that was new for me. That was something really wildly interesting, you know? Mm -hmm. And also he was Muslim living in a Buddhist country. It was Ramadan at the time. And so one day he took me with him into his mosque and I got, we got to be there together when, when he broke his fast at the end of the day, we ate some, we drank some tapioca, tap, tapioca drink mm-hmm. and I was just surrounded by all these men with beards. <laughs> you know, maybe my beard protected me. <laughs> not, not that there is danger. I don't know. I just felt it was intense. You know, I didn't yeah. know the language and I didn't know what to do. And I trusted Mr. Book, but um, it came time for us to leave and I wanted to go say goodbye to him one more time uh, before our bus took off. And I, I went over and he said, um, by the way, he, he was reading all these books in English, you know, and he said that he had learned English over eight years from tourists like me, you know. Um, but he did also have a teacher. So when I went to say goodbye, he said, Joe, would you like to meet? my teacher she's 94 years old and i said mr book i'll follow you anywhere and i we canceled the bus trip we canceled our hiking plans and he stood up with his cane and he walked slowly through this town and out of the town i followed him through the market all the way to the edge of the town to this bamboo house on stilts he slowly climbed up the steps and I climbed up and I was suddenly self-conscious that I was shaking the whole house with my weight and my size. (laughs) 
I'm bigger than Burmans, <laughs> than, than the Burmese people. Yeah. Uh, and in the, but in the darkness, I saw this woman sitting at a table, cutting fruit. And she said, come in. And Mr. Book stationed himself across from her with his chin on his hands and his elbows on the table, just staring up at her and wondering, you know, he's in his 50s, 60s. So you can imagine the awe that I felt as I sat down and she spoke to me with her eyes closed. She had this habit of closing her eyes as she spoke. Hmm. She would look at me, but then she'd tilt her head back and she was telling me her life story and I could study the wrinkles on her face unabashedly Hmm. (laughs) because her eyes were closed And I drank in this story. She said that in 1953, she won a scholarship to go to a university in London to study English. Sorry, not to study English, just to study at the university. Mm. And she was the only person from Burma that year to go on this boat to go study in or to take this scholarship. And she completed her degree And afterwards, she could have done anything. She went back to her small town in Burma and devoted her entire teaching career to the children of that that region, like Mr. Book. And while she was telling me this, with her eyes closed and her back to the entry, I could see the entry that I had come in behind her. A toddler came up the steps and crawled behind her and knelt and he had a small piece of fruit and he set it down and he just waited and I was a little perplexed especially when I saw another (laughs) come up a few moments later and he had a little piece of chocolate and he knelt down next to the other and then another and another until there were a dozen kids behind her totally silent but giggling with each other and nudging each other and just waiting. And she seemed totally oblivious until she interrupted herself and she said, excuse me, Joe, I have to bless these children. And she turned from me to them and spoke something over them. And in that moment, I saw the pure essence of education which is a gift between the experienced and the inexperienced. And you know, since then I've resolved to be a 94-year-old teacher. What was so special about Mr. Book was the way he treated me and the way he saw Saumyo Asit, his 94-year-old teacher, and the way he made sure to bring us together. He was the spark that lit the fire that powers this empathy machine 
and I hope it can burn in your heart too. Because of him, I talked to a Cameroonian migrant who came to Italy on a boat where people died crossing the Mediterranean from Libya. You know, for my family, you know, give money, small money for my family. A French volunteer in Greece. So, for example, I worked one month uh, in India. My grandpa. So uh, I'm practicing right now to, to be an ambassador to greet new people coming in. So uh, this is a good uh, exercise here. Yeah. <laughs> well, you can advertise for the place. You're a whiz, Joe, you know that? <laughs> My mentor from grad school. I don't know. I mean, I'm not sure. I've traveled uh, quite a bit. Mm-hmm. Uh, and... I'm not sure whether I do things very differently from the fact of having traveled. You know, maybe that's because I'm too... Um, uh, I, I cannot see myself from the outside. A Berber nomad who rebuffed me. Oh, I understand what you want. I understand what you like. Mm-hmm. Not the first time. Mm-hmm. I meet many places. But mm-hmm. people, many lies. People, they try only to use what he wants. When he finds everything what he wants, what he's looking for, record, and then, and then, and then, they go, never know you anymore. A Scottish chauffeur. Yeah, well, you're, you're, as you say, you're driving north. You're talking about rural countryside to your left and right. The hill on your right, just ahead of us, you can see there, that's Bullingray Hill, which is named after the town which sits at the foot of it, which is an old mining town in the Kingdom of Fife in Scotland. A Syrian refugee. We walked again, again to another place. We ride a bus to pick up us to another area. It's in Turkey. Two German pilgrims. Only go. <laughs> Only go. <laughs> Years after I met Mr. Book, I finally read what he pressed me to read. He laid out copies of Dostoevsky and all the world's great literature in English. He pointed and told me, you have to read The Summing Up by William Somerset Maugham. He told me it was the most important book I could read. And I did, finally, years later. And a year ago, I opened this podcast with a passage from that book. And I'll end this episode with it again, because it bears repeating. Thank you for listening with me all this time. This is only the beginning. In this memoir, The Summing Up, Mom writes, I came back from each of my journeys a little different. It never occurred to me that my new experiences were having an effect on me. And it was not till long afterwards that I saw how they had formed my character. In contact with all these strange people, I lost the smoothness I had acquired when, leading the humdrum life, I was one of the stones in a bag. I got back my jagged edges. I was at last myself.